Good morning. Oh, is this the hip hop concert? No, I'm saying, hey. I thought it was, man, I thought it was. Hey, good morning to you. Uh, my name is Tim Johnson, and uh, as you could probably already tell, uh, I do things a little bit different. And uh, I'm just wired like that. You're gonna have to forgive me. Um, I am a, uh, I love Jesus. That's one thing I know. Uh, a little wild, uh, former kind of, I played football for at least the greater part of a decade or more. So everything is a lot animated. I, I kind of have ADD but was never diagnosed, so I just, standing still is a problem. So just expect for a lot of this action. And uh, every once in a while, you know, when you've been yelled at for all your life, finish, one more, you know, you just kind of, you know, so sometimes I raise my voice, but I'm not angry at all, right? I'm very happy, I am loving life. I love being here, but sometimes I just raise it up a little bit. Um, a lot of corny jokes will be coming your way. You can laugh just to make me feel better. That was your cue. That was your cue, right? Come on, man. Uh, but anyway, hey, it's good to be with you. A lot of my friends are in the building. Uh, when me and my wife made this uh, trek about, oh, a little over a year ago, um, it was scary because we were coming from an absolutely all-black context. Jerry curls and gold teeth, and now here I sit <laughs> with you, right? And uh, maybe that was a little bit scary. I don't know how, uh, how many of y'all have ever made the trek from a majority context, and you were the minority now in a new minority co uh, majority context. Maybe it's a little bit scary. Um, but due to special people, a lot of special people in this room, uh, Michael Warner, Rob, Eddie Foster, Marshall Clark, Sandy, uh, just so many of my friends who have just made this transition much, uh, much easier uh, than maybe it could have been. I'm just very grateful for you. And so uh, I just, you know, I'm black. Did y'all know that? <laughs> so, so, you know, I do things a little different. And maybe, uh, man, the, thank you for the hymn this morning. Can y'all put your hands together for the hymn? See, that's another thing. That's another thing you got to get ready for. There might be a little more hand clapping in here. You know, they might, this might be second uh, Kojic church by the time we get done. I'm sorry, maybe I'm just saying. I'm just saying here. Uh, but yeah, we do things a little different. Maybe sometimes even just to kind of settle my heart and to, uh, I don't know, just really uh, just invite God's warmth and his presence uh, into the atmosphere. So I just, I sometimes I just break out in the song. Right? Uh, can, I, can I for a second? Oh, how do I say thanks for the things you have done for me? Things so undeserved, yet you gave your life for me. The voices of a million angels cannot express my gratitude for all that I am and ever hope to be, oh Lord, I owe it all to thee. To God be the glory, to God be the glory, to God be the glory for the his blood 
blessing me. And with his power, he has raised me. If you know it, sing it. To God be the glory for the he has done. Lord, we love you. I feel welcome now. A little black boy from Mobile, Alabama feels welcome now amongst the midst of 150 white dudes from a world I don't know because we share something in common that all of us together have been ransomed and purchased by a God who, who didn't owe something, but we owed something, and he paid our debt. And so together, at 6.30 in the morning, we can say with one heart, to God be the glory. God, I thank you. God, would you speak to us in this time? God, would you open our hearts and just like D already prayed, God, when we leave the company of each other. We want to look, want to feel, want to be more like you. In Jesus' name, and we all say, amen. amen. Thank y'all for singing with me. You sounded good this morning. Um, anyway, so my name is Tim. I'm the executive director of Spark. And so this initiative, maybe about two years ago, Sandy, uh, Brian LaRitz, and John Bryson, uh, Brian, uh, and Rufus Smith, somehow that consortium got together. And as uh, uh, they began to sit as faith leaders in the midst of Memphis, Tennessee, tried to figure out, hey, man, how can we begin to make a difference in this city, even to a greater degree? And so ultimately, I'm just going to uh, act like I was a fly on the wall in that conversation, which I wasn't. Um, but uh, I would imagine that at some point they said, hey, maybe there are some limits, right? We are pastors. Maybe we can't make a huge impact in the education sector. Maybe we can't change healthcare, uh, uh, do a major overhaul with healthcare. Maybe uh, we can't really affect all the crime. But the one thing that church leaders can do and pastors can do is maybe we could plant intentionally uh, healthy churches. And when we say healthy, we're meaning three things. We're meaning Christ-centered first, right? We're meaning outwardly focused, and we're meaning relevant churches in areas of Memphis that don't have those for whatever reason. And so um, maybe uh, five, six, seven, eight months from there, uh, they hired me to kind of come up and uh, survey the land. And uh, one of the best decisions, now, anybody love Memphis in here? Anybody love Memphis? Ooh, yeah, yeah. Come on, man. Hey, you know, I'm trying to learn all the talk around here. Hotty toddy. What is that? You know, go Tigers, go. I'm trying to learn it, but I love Memphis, right? And uh, it's a beautiful place. And, and so uh, essentially, you know, my role here in Memphis is to try to find, uh, learn the city, just be able to kind of have a grip on how ministry works here from a 30,000 foot level, understand that especially urban ministry, African-American ministry, and, and, and who's coming, who's going, where the health is, where, where there are some, some, some blind areas or some spots that need to be kind of revitalized and really build relationships from maybe this side of Memphis to the other side of Memphis. And so um, our goal is to really plant uh, for the next several years churches that will literally transform this city, especially the areas um, that have maybe been overlooked in the inner city, but also to trying to find areas of Memphis that would be conducive 
uh, to having multi-ethnic faith communities. So in other words, we might not put a multi-ethnic church in the middle of Orange Mount because there ain't number of black folks there. You understand what I'm saying, right? So where can we find some natural fault lines where, you know, we've got different cultures kind of colliding and where, where can we uh, intentionally plant a faith community there um, that can be a, a community church, not a commuter-based church where people kind of drive it in, but where can it naturally kind of happen? So that's kind of what I do. Uh, if you have a pulse in, in 2016 and you've been living this summer as an American, then you would probably agree that I probably wouldn't have a whole lot of pushback on our initiatives, that uh, our inner cities probably need healthy churches. And if there was any time in American history where we probably need to have white Christians and black Christians and Latino Christians going to church together, probably be right now. Amen. Can I get an amen right there? Okay. Yeah, probably not going to get a lot of pushback on that. We know that, that our inner cities are reeling. They're hurting. Um, it's a, it's a big time uh, that I believe that the gospel needs to be heralded and it needs to be at the forefront um you know just in case uh you don't know let me just rattle off some things for you just in case you don't think that the despair in the inner city is really real we know if you go to educationgap.org mtr they have this stat up but our inner city schools in memphis tennessee on average are perform performing and scoring five points less on the act than our other schools just that's on average just five some are, are as low as eight you know that infant mortality, HIV, AIDS, heart disease, those things are tremendously accelerated as soon as you get into the inner city. Did you also know that at some point this spring, this very spring, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, the homicide rate here was, I believe, 9.13 per 100,000. Now, if you're not into that, then let me just provide some context. Chirac, Chicago, at the same point in time, I think it was about April, Chicago was at about 5.55 per 100,000. Far exceeding our population, we were killing them. We were tearing it up. Our homicide rate was trumping Chicago's, right? Now, these type of things, these violent crimes, the homicides, all these things, these aren't happening in Collierville. They're not necessarily happening in East Memphis in the 38111, are they? Right? Even in Memphis, the highest incident zip codes here are Orange Mountain and White Haven. These are our inner cities, right? Really hurting. And maybe even the most, the most profound thing that as you kind of peel back that and you start looking at what's happening in our inner city, it might, if we, if we could peel it back and take it a, a next step further, we want to just look at incarceration, right? From, I believe, 1965, maybe even to 1995, mass incarceration has quadrupled right? And most of our inner cities are filled with people of a darker hue than yourselves, right? Black people and Latino people. Black people six times more likely to be incarcerated than whites. Latino people three times more likely to be incarcerated than whites. And what essentially has happened, if you peel back everything that's happening in the inner city, if you can really kind of locate one common denominator, you would, if, if, so ultimately, unless you chase, you know, really follow this to its logical conclusion, what, you would be off base. You would think or you would buy into an idea that black people or Latino people are pre, uh, genetically predisposed to be more violent. Maybe they're predisposed to be more criminal. But if you peeled it back and you really looked at it and, you, and, and really thought about how absurd that sounds, 
then one of the things that you would find is with mass incarceration, with HIV AIDS and all these epidemics and the homicide rate, one of the things that you're going to find when you look at the inner city communities is all those things have left our children in those inner cities fatherless. Fatherless. There's nobody leading, nobody guiding. There's no stake in the ground that's holding the family unit together. Check a look at this fatherless stuff. I think in 1960, so I think this particular study that I looked at from 1960 to 2010, uh, there's a 400% increase in single parent homes. 400% from 1960 to 2010. 1100% increase in homes that there was a never married mother in there. So it went from four to actually 44%. Somebody, I'm turning you into a charismatic group, group of guys. Somebody say fatherlessness. Can you say fatherlessness? There you go. Can you say fatherlessness one more time? <laughs> there you go. Hey man, we got a problem. We got a problem. And you know, as a black man living in white evangelical uh, Christianity and working in this sphere in this world and some of my white brothers and sisters who love God and who are very sensitive to the things that have been happening outside this room in our city and our nation one of the most popular questions that I've gotten was man you know I feel so bad about this but what do you think the next question would be what can I do well somebody say thank you Jesus because I got some answers for you <laughs> You know, I've sat and I've pondered, and I don't take my, my, my positioning and my role in the time, space, and history that God has me in lightly. Um, you, you, you know, I, uh, my, my, uh, my adopted dad is in the room. His name is Ronald J. Hickman. Where you at, dad? You back there? Put your hand up. That's my ball. Um, you know, he'd be able to testify to the fact that I'm not an angry black guy. Yeah, I'm not an angry black guy. No, no. But... Um, you know, prayerfully, as I approached August 18th, I said, man, how could I use maybe the uniqueness of, of who I am and what I do in this city, maybe just to shed some light? And so that's, that's what I want to do. All right. Let's turn really quick to James 1 and 27. We're just going to stare at one passage. And what I hope to do is that, um, man, by the time we get done kind of unpacking and me saying what I what I what I believe the Lord has on my heart to say. I'd love to, to, to leave the floor open for a couple questions, and we'll, we'll keep it moving. James 1 and 27, it reads like this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I'll read it one more time. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so let me just provide a little context for where we are right now. So James is now in the New Testament. We got the brother of Jesus who kind of was a late convert, but now he finds himself shepherding and pastoring this flock. And there's probably a lot of ethnic Jews and even formerly practicing religious Jews in the midst. And so he writes this letter. And so as you kind of look at the New Testament and you look at those 27 books, you see you got gospels that are kind of walking through Jesus's 
narrative, how he walked, how he talked, and then it kind of bookends with revelations. It's the eschaton, how it all ends. But in the middle of all of that, you'll see it kind of split between books that concentrate on orthodoxy, right thinking, and then books that will kind of focus on orthopraxy. And so James writes this book on practical living, right? what it really looks like to when your heart has been rocked by Jesus, when it's been changed, when you have believed this truth that you are now saved by grace through faith, this kind of is how it plays itself out. Right. It's a very practical book. It almost reads like the Proverbs. Right. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Lean not on it. So it's very practical. It's just firing out just practical things of how we kind of need to be living out our faith. And so um, one of the things that is going to kind of focus on in this first chapter is kind of what true saving faith looks like. Right. How it kind of bears itself out. And so the very first kind of uh, verses, we, we see the familiar passage where it's going to say, hey, True faith, true saving faith will stand up in trials, right? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations. You've seen that before, right? This is what true saving faith looks like. It will bear up under even adverse circumstances. And then it kind of goes deeper and it says true saving faith will look like this when it's under temptation. When facing temptation, true saving faith will bear up under those things. But then James kind of, you know, as he starts getting to 22, he starts to change up a, a, a little bit. And um, he says he's going to focus now on true saving faith will respond to the word of God. Right. If I had a note paper, if I had a, a brain, if I only had a brain, <laughs> I'd be writing that down. I'd be making a mental note. I would just say true saving faith will respond to the word of God. Right. And so uh, if I could just go up, go up a little bit to 22, I'll just read that for you. Right. Just put it all back in context. This is what he's saying. Listen, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. And then it starts talking about looking into the perfect law of liberty and forgetting who you were and what you weren't were, all that type of different stuff. And so basically what he's saying is, hey, we're not going to be a group. We're not going to be a community. We're not going to be a faith congregation who just hears these things, right? And who's just kind of fat intellectually, but we've got to match what's happening in our hearts and our minds with what we do. Matter of fact, what we do is going to validate that we truly heard truth. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? Can I get an amen this morning? Amen, lights and walls. Amen. Amen. So James writes this really practical book, and then he lands in 27 at this verse where he's going to say, hey, religion that is pure, what's religion? It's simply just going to mean worship, how we worship, how we offer uh, 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 worth to God, right? Worship and religion uh, that is pure and undefiled before God. Now, when you use the word undefiled to undefiled to Jewish and former practicing Jews, they know exactly what this means. They know exactly what this means. They they they've been brought up in Leviticus and, and Exodus and the Levitical sacrificial system, and they know what it means to bring an unblemished goat, an unblemished turtle dove. They know what it means to bring those things, and they know the consequences. For, for not bringing those things, they know exactly what's happening, right? So he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. But here's the thing. We know all throughout Scripture that our brothers, I'm not just going to put it on, on, on them, 
our Israelite brothers, our Jewish brothers, our Hebrew brothers are notorious for kind of somehow disconnecting what God wants in worship with what they're doing. It's kind of always notorious, right? Just look at these scriptures from the Old Testament. This is Hosea 6 and 6. You just listen. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's who he's speaking to his people. What are you doing, right? Hey, thank you for those sacrifices, but what I'd rather have is, is steadfast love and, and, and not your burnt offerings, right? Take a look at Isaiah 1 and 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough burnt offerings and rams and fat of fed cattle and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. There seems to be a disconnect between what they're offering in worship and what the Lord is desiring in worship, right? Take a look even in the New Testament, Matthew 23 and 27. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which looked beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of dead men's bones and even every impurity. In the same way, you appear to be righteous on the outside, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is Matthew 15 and 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I hope I have painted just a quick little snapshot of sometimes what happens that I think even happens to us. Sometimes we think we're killing it, but we're not. It just seems to be some disconnect between what God is requiring in worship and what people are really thinking. And they're convinced. You have the Pharisees who are convinced that they are offering the most purest thing to God that he wants. All to get on the scene. And Jesus says, you whitewashed tombs. It looks good on the outside, but in the inside, you're dead. And what I see when I look at James in the first chapter is a pastor kind of pleading with his context. Far be it from us to be the group who thinks we're doing something for God that is really beautiful and acceptable and honorable. But no, let us go back to what we know he wants. Not going to be us, right? But let us go back to what we know he wants. Religion that is pure, that is untainted and acceptable before God is to visit the orphans and the widows and to be untainted by the world. Somebody say amen for me. It just helps me. Just help me keep my flow. So the problem is the fatherlessness. That's what's happening here, right? He says, listen, the father is the missing piece, and you know what? What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to visit the orphans and the widows. That's what we're going to have to do, right? That's what pure religion is. Why is God so, uh, uh, why is he leaning so hard? Why is, is the visiting of the orphans and the widows so important? And I think you got to trace it back to his original design for the family, the father being the linchpin and the key building block, right? The father, ultimately, you can go back to Deuteronomy, you can read the Shema. You see how important the, the, the generational discipleship is, right? But you see the pastor, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, uh, uh, the, the father, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, just a couple things real quick, just as I'm speaking to a, a group of fathers. Just this is your scorecard really quick. Number one, it's just three Ps, the pastor. The father is the primary pastor of the home. You know that. You're good Presbyterians. You catechize. Who made you? Right? You know what that is. Get that little book from the bookstore. I'm working on it, right? When I, when I, when I introduce my black family to catechisms, I have people like, what are you doing to those kids? I say, it's catechisms, man. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Just, you know, Q&A. So anyway, um, it's good. Man, they're beautiful. But that's the pastor's role. It's not Sandy's Wilson role to pastor your family. 
It's not, it's not Todd and Dick, and it's not their role to pastor your family. You're the priest of your home. You're responsible for the spiritual nourishment and health of your family, washing your wife with the water of the word. That's your responsibility. Father, pastor, right? Secondly, hey, provider, right? That's what we do. Man, don't work, you don't eat. Thank you for the checks that come from Second Presbyterian. I just want to take, <laughs> so take a quick second. Just thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Keep those coming. Anyway. Um, Provider, that's one of the basic responsibilities. Dads, you provide when all else fails. What's on the table is what you put there, right? And if, you, if, if anybody going to eat, you'll be last, right? Because you're providing and taking care. You're protecting. You are the guard dog. You are protecting uh, uh, your family from all types of attacks, whether they be spiritual, whether it be physical, literal. You're, you're the, the line of defense there. That's just a very stripped down and basic understanding of kind of what God envisioned the role of the father to be. But I want to take it a step further. God is intent with this idea of fatherhood, right? Even just look at the soteriology, right? Like we believe our, our, our salvation ladder, we believe that in a moment. God's irresistible grace kind of shines in our heart. For you, it probably was at some old Miss football game, and you were probably drunk, and you were, ah, and all of a sudden, you know, God's light shined in your heart, and in the midst of a hundred thousand screaming fans, you were like, Jesus, right? That was you, wasn't that was you? But you know, I'm not sure. It probably was, right? But anyway, but that's what happens, right? The, 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 this moment of regeneration where his irresistible grace shines in our heart, illuminates us to our sin, the weight of it, and kind of awakens us, pulls the scales back off our eyes, and we realize that we've been made anew in Christ Jesus, right? And then we also realize this beautiful thing called justification, that in that same moment, boom, the gavel hit, and once and for all, we'll never, ever be judged for our sin again, right? That he paid for our sin, past, present, and future. We are loved and accepted, and now we can stand proudly before him knowing that his grace and his mercy have covered us, right? Justification. Now, here's the thing. Here's the beautiful thing I think I love about Christianity. Jesus could have illuminated our hearts. He could have made us completely alive in Christ, right? He could have pulled the scales back from our eyes. He could have declared us righteous. He could have legally hit the gavel, declared us righteous. We would have never had to pay the penalty for our sin. But he chose to take it a step further. He says, not only am I going to pay the price for your sin through substitutionary atonement, not only am I going to declare you righteous through justification, but I'm going to adopt you. See, that's an unnecessary step. He could have accomplished our salvation without making us a part of his family. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? But he insisted that we become his kids and that he become our father. And that's going to be an important part of how we relate to him from here on out. Look at Romans 8. Now, now, he gives us a spirit that we can cry before him, Abba, Father, not King. King, I got a request. Not judge. How many people do I have to wait in line before I can make a request? No, you scream, Daddy. I'm going to try to do it without crying, y'all, but it's coming. I get excited, man. 
See, I understand I'm living it right now. Seth, you know, we're living it right now. We have kids who, who don't care about our positioning. They don't care about where we are. All they know is when they have needs that we're the ones who can fill them, and they scream no matter where they are, no matter what time of the night it is, Daddy, Mama, I need you. I wonder, this is not even the sermon, but I wonder whether or not you truly exercise that right that you have. And some of y'all are going through some really complex and unique situations in your life. And I, and I pray that your primal instinct would kick in and sometimes it would just allow you just to cry, Daddy, I need you. I don't care how old you are. God, I need you. You have that right. You don't have to have a formal request. You can boldly come before the throne of grace and know that you're going to find mercy in your time of need. Can somebody say amen on that? Oh! Hey, 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 that just means I got excited. Don't get scared. So the family is an important part of God's peace. It's an important part. It's it's he instituted the design for his family that the father was going to be the linchpin for how he organizes the Christian unit. But then he also wants himself to be seen as father. Fatherhood is important. I was reading John Frame, and and he gets to a point where he says, hey, but, but really, your earthly father is probably going to be the first kind of precursor to how you will eventually accept God as father or see him as father, right? And so for those of us who've had earthly fathers, we've had parents in the, two parents in the home, and we've had fathers in the home, for us to begin to understand the language that God is our father, maybe that naturally computes, right? Because we were the guys who, dad was at our football games and basketball games, and you know, you, we go into your shoebox and we'll see that ugly Christmas photo where all y'all have, you know, different ornaments on. You know what I'm saying? That's your photo, right? We got those cheesy, weird moments. We went to Waterworks or Waterville, and we were at the game together. We have that. And so for us, when you tell us and Sandy tells us that God is our father, it computes, it registers. But that's not the reality for most of Memphis. When you tell them that God is their father, what do you mean? Because I never met mine. Mine comes by, knocks on the door at 12 o'clock at night, visits mom. I smelt him there, but he ain't there when I wake up. See, those are different concepts. And so God said he worked in the contingency plan. You see, in the gospel, he says the poor is going to be with you always. And I think he knew that we would always have widows and orphans. He knew that. And he worked in the contingency plan. He says, my people who have comfortable, good lives, they're going to have to be marked by something different. And in order for me to really able to meet the needs of the widows and orphans, I'm going to have to take the comfortable people and they're going to have to fill in some gaps. Or else this world will never be able to really experience all that I have in the fullness of God's family and his unique design. Let's dive in, man. A couple stories, and I want to kind of get to some questions, if, if you have some. But I started volunteering at, uh, in Kingsbury, and uh, I'm a football player by trade. And uh, you know, I'm sure you probably tell by all this good stuff happening <laughs> Kendall, I didn't, you know what I'm saying? It's, you know, so so embarrassing. I'm probably about 220-something pounds now, and, uh, you know, life and food has been good to me. And uh, my playing weight was like 185, 190. 
And uh, so sad. People are like, oh, man, you played football? What position you played? Linebacker? <laughs> no, receiver. <laughs> Sheesh. No, you know, man, it just, the years, they do strange things to your body. You know what I mean? It's, it's strange thing. But anyway, so I was a football player by trade, but, you know, I wanted to get involved, and they had basketball. You know, football players and basketball players, it's just, it's almost like bulls on ice. It's just weird kind of phenomenon. It's a whole lot of tackling and instead of fouling and whatever. But, so just tried to make it work the best I could. Not really a great X and O guy. I don't know anything. All I know is just run hard. And, and so the first two games, we got clobbered, and uh, it was bad. And I remember literally going home and praying, like, Lord, please. These boys are not going to listen to me unless you help me learn how to coach. So uh, that was a big, big moment in my life. But anyway, um, volunteering there was just a great and wonderful experience. And uh, the first game, no, 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 I think this is our second game. We lost again. And uh, I kind of got my team in a little corridor and they're huddled up. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm giving my, that's the one thing I'm good at. It's post-game and pre-game speeches. That's right. <laughs> Now, that's what I am good at. I don't know anything about X's and O's and pivots and two, three zones, but come on, man, let me fire you up real quick to go lose. Anyway, so, you know, so, <laughs> so I, I got him in the corridor, and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, telling him, and then all of a sudden, man, this big commotion breaks out. Boom, 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 boom. Now, when you're in the inner city context, you know, you can, you can almost smell drama, and so things kind of get quiet and weird, and then you kind of start just hearing things flipping, going crazy. So my team is there, and I've, I've got this... Uh, the 16 and up boys, and you know, so I turn around just to kind of see what's going on. I run out, and, and this kid's crying and yelling and, and going all over the place. And so some kids are running out the door. Man, we can, you know, there's a bunch of expletives I'll save you from, right? We're gonna get that. And so kids are flying out the door. So I'm running out the door. What's going on? You know, trying to see some order. And all of a sudden, I, I see this kid, and they're chasing this kid down the street, about three or four boys chasing this kid down the street. And they're gonna get that dude. And they're just yelling or whatever. And so all of a sudden, another little boy, couldn't have been between 13 and 15, is crying, and he takes off in a full sprint. He said, man, they about to go jump on my brother. Boom, so he takes off running down the street. And so we snatch him up, we're able to grab him. Man, what's going on? And he's crying. Man, they about to go jump on my brother. You know, you can't really make things out. You just see frustration and anger. It's like, man, look, don't go down there. But mine, meanwhile, while we got this little guy, we're trying to get him under control. Boom! Things are breaking out behind us. So it was like, oh man, what do you do? So we kind of let, let him go. And what did he do? Straight down the street. Run back into kind of the corridor. Man, we're trying to get order. It's another little guy. He's getting jumped on. So we breaking that up. And then all of a sudden, man, I can remember distinctly. It's about 12 games on the slate that day. And we were playing teams from this side of town right and uh you know so there's these beautiful basketball games kind of going on inside the gym and all oh, world war three is breaking out in the hallway right and it's literally two or three adults and we're all literally and how many y'all know you raise adolescent boys they, they got a little strength and they got a little white might might so it's shoot man you're a little stronger than i thought so you know you you got all that type of thing going on and it's hard for two or three people to try to contain that and control that and so all of a sudden i remember a lady with a purse kind of walking in the building and she looked at me and she says you all need to get that under control
And I kind of had out of in the middle of all this chaos, I kind of had an out of body experience. And I wanted so bad to just cuss her out. Ma'am, I don't even work here. Out of all the people in the hallway, what made you come to me to think that this was my responsibility to get this thing under control? Meanwhile, while you and everybody else who came with your team is going conveniently right back into the gym. But we had other things going on. So literally, finally got things settled out. Finally got things under control. And I'm just literally like, I felt like I just played four football games. That's how much I was running back and forth and trying to grab people and whatever. I'm just kind of trying to process. The little boy who was kind of getting jumped on, he was sitting in the corner with about two or three of his buddies, and he's crying. And I just, all I can remember, I think I remember telling Rob and Ron, it's like, I saw three little 13 and 14-year-old boys consoling another little boy, telling them it's going to be all right, man. And you know, when you live in the inner city, retaliation is not an option. People come down your street, they start talking the big stuff and they start swinging, you better be back on their street the next week. It's not even an option. So you come in there with the peace, love, and harmony, you don't hit back. Turn the other, that, they will might hit you. It's not an option. So they're consoling them and saying, man, don't worry about it, we gonna get these dudes back. That was their consolation to them. Man, don't worry about it. We're coming. We'll get them back. And so all of a sudden, after all this commotion, minutes later, the police walk into the room. And so, you know, really, I'm looking at a 13-year-old boy crying. And so I'm just really expecting kind of something different. So the police kind of walks in there. And this is at the height of Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, and all of that. And I'm like, surely he's aware of all of this, right? Surely if there's any time where you need to have amended how you administer justice, maybe you have worked through this. So he walks up to a group of black dudes. So what's the problem here? Young man, do you need to come with me? Or are you going to be able to get things under control? Man, I just almost broke down crying. It's a 13-year-old boy who likes playing video games. He probably just is going through puberty. He's trying to take magazines and look at girls. He's, he's a boy. He's a baby boy, man. And for the first time, I think I began to really realize this is what they're trying to say when they say black lives matter. What they're screaming is, what am I to you? Am I just an animal? When I get done with this, all I want to do is go play basketball with my friends. I'm just a little boy, whether I was Latino, Asian, or white. What do you see when you see me? I was so distraught, I left, I went home, and I couldn't even really eat, really talk to Gina. I was just trying to process everything that was happening. I was like, man, we got a problem. We got a major problem. And all I could think about was, when this little boy, what he really needed 
was a James 1 and 27 visit. He needed a visit. He needed a trip to Jerry's snow cones and to sit over a strawberry ice. And man, son, let me tell you about your day. Talk to me about your day. He needed that long trip to, to, to Tupelo where it's just him and dad, where they could cry and talk about how unfair the world is and, and, and maybe how to process that and how to endure struggles and trials. He needed the long fishing trip. He needed to go play catch in the backyard with dad. But none of that is at his disposal, y'all. And instead, what he gets, instead of the grace that a father can provide and the understanding and the love that a father can provide, he gets the law. That's what he gets. You see, every little boy in those hoods, they're being shaped right now. Who they are, how they feel, what they'll stand for, what they won't stand for, it's being shaped by experiences like those right now. And what those little boys need is a visit. I got three points, and then I want to open it up. If you have a little note page, you could write it out. But I love this. I love this when I look back at James 1.27. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained by the world. I love the word, word visit, and, and when you kind of tear it apart in its Greek, I think it kind of has three ideas to it. Let me just share those with you. The first thing, when you visit, then you're not the dominant person in the room, right? You've moved from your place of comfort into a place um, that is foreign to you. So the first thing when, when I say these kids need a visit, they need somebody to move into their space. Now, I'm not saying that you have to move to Orange Mound. I'm not saying that you have to move into Alcee Ball. Seth would love it. But I'm not saying that you have to move to Whitehaven. But I am saying that if you are going to visit, if you believe this is an imperative and a scriptural mandate by God, that this wasn't just for the people who were in James' time, space, and history, but this is a scripture that you have to bear under the weight under, then you, all of us, white or black, are responsible to move out of comfort into some foreign space. That's the first thing when, it, when I say visit. You have to move out of your comfort into some foreign space. The second thing is, when you visit, you got to observe, Right? You're not controlling the atmosphere, you're observing. And you know, one of the things that I think when I heard Sandy preach about the Memphis summer and, 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 and when I see the disparity that's happening is we don't have a lot of observation. You have TV observation. You think, uh, and I'm indicting, I'm not you because it's different, it's not you, somebody else, but it ain't you. There, but there are some in here who really all kind of black people look alike. All black people talk alike, dress alike, think alike, right? I'm the black dude who sings a little bit and who has the James Harden hair. That's me, right? Just so you know, right? Y'all remember that? Maybe big hair, you know, little parts in there. That's me. That's what I want to do. My life, I kind of see myself as a, uh, 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 a hip-hop rap star in a, in, a, in a pastor's body. So sometimes I fight that. So when you see me on the street and you see me in the mall and I got my tennis shoes and my hat backwards, that's me. That's how I feel comfortable. That's what I like, right? You got Mike, who has the mic be so sharp, man. Y'all know Mike Davis? See, I ain't Mike Davis. You do know that, right? 
right? And so my wife's name is not Soraya, Serena. And my wife's name is Gina. You do know that, right? And that's okay. You can make that mistake. You can make that mistake. Some, some already have. Hey, Tim, how's Serena? Huh? Wrong black guy. Wrong black guy. That's okay. I understand. I understand. I'm gonna give you some grace. Now, the second time you do it, I'm gonna hit you with the hoo You know, I'll give you some of that. But, you know, right now, I'm gonna extend grace, right? Other black guys, right? So, but what I'm trying to say is, what is especially hard for you guys, you guys don't even get a fair cross section of the black community. Because me and Mike and the other black, we're some, but we're not all. You don't know black people because you know me. So let me just help you. I know Tim Johnson. You might get slapped in the face. You don't know black people just because you know me. You need to move. You got to move into some unfamiliar territory. You got to make yourself available, and you have to observe. And when you go into places like I've been in, and you witness that experience that I have, then when it's time for you just to mourn, because the reality is there are some black people who are doing things that are criminal. But you are a black woman in a black community, and you have literally, from the time of slavery, the black family is a miracle. Do you understand that? Now, that might be hard for you. I'm not being imperialistic, but from the coast of West Africa, where we were separated from family members, right? You we got we, hunger strikes going across the Atlantic because we didn't want to be plucked out from the land, but we get here, finally we get here, we're on this trading box in the gallows, finally things are starting to settle out, and we want to begin to, to, to intermarry again, and then we get separated. As soon as they thought you were putting together a family unit, they sold your other parts off, your, your wives were raped. Man, it's a miracle that we even got what we got. Nobody, they didn't give the black family a chance. It's a miracle. Whatever it is that we do have is a miracle. And so then when you go through Jim Crow and civil rights, and then all of a sudden you get on the news, and regardless, if you just see it as an isolated incident, and all you see is black boys getting shot, if you would observe, you could see the rage and the pain of the community. Whether it's right or wrong, you could just understand how much that is conflicting and that hurts. We're not saying for you to wear Black Lives Matter t-shirts or put your hand up. You got to observe to be able to understand and speak with intelligence. This is why a community hurts. This is why they stand on top of a bridge. This is why they're trying to stand in the middle of the street at Graceland, because they're hurting. Right, wrong, or indifferent, they're hurting. But you have to be close enough to make real true assessments and observations. Talking to Tim on this safe little part of town, that's probably not going to get it done. Got to move sometimes into some other space. And last but not least, the word visit, it almost carries with it the attitude that you have to act. Like you're not just going there to observe, but you have to do something. You can't just watch the issues. You have to do something. Isn't that like Christ? Isn't that so gospel, y'all? Right? Isn't that so gospel? Right? Jesus didn't stand in heaven and say, ah, oh, you know, man, 
I could just make it happen. But he invited himself, Philippians, right? He, he considered it, you know, not robbery to make himself a little lower and equal. And he comes into our space and he serves us in our space. He doesn't just look, but he serves and he doesn't make us feel stupid for our hurt and our pain. And, and he still loves us through that. Isn't this being like Christ? So I believe there's a, a biblical mandate for us that you have to get, get up under. Man, how can I make a difference? You got a group of fatherless kids all over this city. And you, got a, a commu- you are living in an America that is as racially tense probably as it's ever been. When I look at some of y'all, the competitor in me still sees some men in here who not just checked out of their Christianity, and that's what I love about this group. When I look at some of y'all, some of y'all not just waiting to ride out and go to glory. I still see a little bit of fire and blood in your eyes, and that makes me excited. The competitor in me says, man, it seems like there's still a little competitor left in some of these men, that they're still saying, man, for Christ I live and for Christ I die, that I'm going to give my last breath serving the king, serving the God who saved my life, and that makes me excited. That gives me hope. And what if a group of men who met at 6.30 on Thursday mornings decided that they weren't going to wait on clergy and, and city officials to change the city? What if they decided that, you know what, we're going to do our part? What if? What if you decided that the change was going to start at Amen Bible Study? What if? See, I don't know what it feels like to grow up without a dad. I had a great dad. When I call Ron my adopted dad, that ain't because I didn't have a good one. That's just because I missed that figure in my life. And I love it. Ron, speak to me. Tell me truth. Do, 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 do. I, I love that because I realize what the father brings. And I was speaking to at our end of the year banquet. I spoke to our boys. And I told them, I said, you know, my father raised us with a lot of imperfections. There's a lot of things he didn't do and did do. But the one thing he always let the Johnson kids know is that we were loved in his house. And he told the men who asked for my sister's hands in marriage, he told them before every marriage, he said, son, look at me. He said, you see that girl right there? He said, I love her. I give my life for her. He said, if you ever at one point in time feel like you need to put your hands on her to get her to understand something or act another way, he said, don't worry about it. You could be in Juneau, Alaska. He said, just call me. We'll be on the next plane. We'll go get her. Don't you ever put your hands on her because I love her. And if you don't want her, we'll take her. I was a football player, but I always thought I was pretty mediocre, right? But my dad always, it just seems like he... He was watching different games than what I was watching. <laughs> Tim, you're so amazing. <clears throat> and you did, Tim, you're this and you're that. And you know what? It was funny because I think that juice somehow just helped. Maybe it helped me. Maybe I started believing something that I didn't believe myself, but that my father was speaking into me. At some point, I actually started believing that I was good enough. It got me to college. He called every day. How was practice? Man, you the best. Dad, this guy is better than, man, you better than him. Dad, you ain't even been to practice. Yeah, man, you, man, you the man. 
I never know what it felt like not to have voices that said, man, I'm proud of you and I love you. I never know what it felt like. My last football game, my last play in my college career, I'm running a sweep. Run the sweep, get in the end zone, Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. So you know what happens when you get in the end zone, you know, you got your teammates, and we're all jumping. <laughs> hey, nay, nay, no, I'm sorry, wrong place, wrong place. But anyway, so you know, we jump and celebrating and, and all that type of stuff. And then all of a sudden, man, you know, you got a bunch of big fat boys and musty guys playing football. And so you know what people smell like? It just smell like icy hot Bengay Kindle, am I right? Icy hot Bengay and sweat. That's what the football field smell like. All of a sudden, we're jumping around, and I smell cologne. On the field of a Division I football game, I'm jumping, and I smell cologne. And I feel somebody kind of wiggling his way in between pads, you know, and he's jumping and hugging. I look down, I love you, son. I love you. That's how I ended my college football career. I can't imagine living life without hearing those voices. I can't imagine going through the rough seasons of my life and not hearing, son, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it. You are good enough. You are, you'll be all right. I know you're misbehaving in the classroom, but you're not that. You're a good boy. You've been made in God's image, and he's giving you his spirit to help you do what he's asking. I can't imagine not hearing that. Do you understand what I'm saying, y'all? And I'm not asking you to go out and you got to be the next whoever, but maybe there is some young man in this city who all he needs to do is have a perspective change just to have you maybe speak something into him that he doesn't even know he's capable of yet. Maybe just maybe. Maybe it starts here. Thank you.